Well, welcome Trinity Bible Church, as well as uh, guests and family. Uh, we are here to continue in our uh, public worship of Christ our Savior. Uh, we are in the Gospel according to Matthew, and after a long time, we are finally at the end of chapter 13. <laughs> we, we made it. Not even halfway there. Okay. Well, I have a, a one announcement uh, prior to continuing to the ministry of the Word, and that is that the next two weeks, both Christmas Sunday and then New, Year, New Year's Day Sunday, there will be no first hour um, equipping class at 9 a.m. or child care. And so there is uh, only the service uh, itself, the worship service, uh, next Sunday on Christmas Day. Uh, the timing is just a little bit different. The, the service will start at 11 o'clock, and the um, doors will be open at 10.30 for coffee and fellowship. And so 11 o'clock, no child care. It will be a family service, uh, but we are increasing the time by an hour and a half. So kids should be fine. <laughs> I'm kidding. An email will go out later in the week to just kind of as a reminder of the time, especially since it's a little bit different on Christmas Day. Now we're in uh, chapter 13, and we'll be reading in verse 53 uh, to the end of the chapter. Uh, if you're new here, I will read through the, the text this morning. After a reading of the text, give you an opportunity to pray uh, to God, uh, to illuminate your heart and your mind to the truth of the word. Uh, if you are here and you are not a Christian and you're just, you are here today, we just ask that you consider the words that you are here this morning from the Bible. So beginning in verse 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there, because... Of their unbelief. Please take this time to pray. Heavenly Father, as we, your church, gather on the Lord's Day, we come to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
and in his death, in his spilt blood and his broken body, taking on the curse of God for sin and the due penalty of sin that was rightfully ours. We come, though, in celebration and acknowledging his resurrection from the dead, his ascension back to the right hand of the Father, the giving of the Holy Spirit to his people, the church, empowered by the Spirit, given new life in order to take his message, the gospel, the good news, That man, while a sinner and a rebel, destined for judgment, God has made a way. Through Christ, the Savior and Redeemer. And Lord, so we come to celebrate that this morning. Through song and through prayer and through blessed fellowship. And now through the ministry of the word. Lord, Uh, We pray at this time your Holy Spirit would illuminate our minds to the truth of the word. We would be laid open and bare before you, even as your people, the sinful ways that have governed our lives this week. Our innate selfishness and our desire to worship ourselves above our Creator and Redeemer. Lord, turn our hearts and our affections to you through the power of the Spirit and your Holy Word. Shape us more and more into the image of Christ through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and empower us to flee from sin and seek you in your Word and prayer. God, strengthen the church here in this fallen kingdom. Lord, we pray for the unbelievers in our midst. Pray, God, that through your sovereign plan and purpose, and that through the ministry of the Spirit and your word, that you would draw them to yourself this morning, that they would be convicted of their sin through the power of regeneration of the Spirit. They would repent of dead works, be made new in Christ. Lord, more than anything, we, we offer all of our worship to you, that your name would be glorified in our midst. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. As we're going through the gospel according to Matthew, And it coincides with the time in the church calendar known as Advent. Advent primarily, based on most of of society, is based around the the holiday of Christmas. And Christmas, in any society, can take on all sorts of traditions and meanings that, that actually dilute from what Advent was actually about. Unlike Easter which was always a fixed holiday or a fixed feast, meaning 
we're given the dates and the time and the, when, when the crucifixion and the resurrection and all these things happened to where Easter was always a fixed feast in the church, meaning it was known as a time when the church would celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in so doing, the feast aspect of it was that the Lord's Supper, which would be celebrated, would then be followed by a feast or a meal, a communal meal and celebration. And so these were known as the feasts that were practiced. And it was a fixed feast. Advent was never fixed, meaning because we don't have the actual dates and we don't have the actual times of of the birth of Christ. And so churches throughout history would celebrate it whenever they felt like it on the calendar, depending. But it was focused on a particular theological truth. Just as resurrection was the culmination of God's redemptive plan, showing that this sovereign God, who is unchanging, perfect in all these ways, and his creature who is sinful and changing and and imperfect, and God reaches out to make covenant with his creature through the blood of Christ, and then through his blood has redeemed his people, And his resurrection is a showing of his power and overcoming. And then his ascension is showing his place now at the right hand. And then the church knows there's one thing left. We're waiting on one thing now, and that's for his return. Until such a time we are to be at work. That's Easter. Advent was a different theological aspect that we we lose sight of. It's not typified by baby Jesus. It's not even typified by the manger. The main aspect of the gospel accounts that we are supposed to be focused on is the humiliation of the Son of God. The Son of God taking on flesh was humiliation. In the ultimate act of humility, God makes a way for those who have no way. And so the second person of the Trinity, a plan from eternity past, openly, willingly humiliates himself for you and I. Don't get caught up in the baby. There's cute babies. The purpose of Advent is to make you be in awe. Of what God has done. And why do I say that? It's not because you uh, the sweaters. It's, it's the purpose of what we're going to see. What may seem a disjointed chapter. As we've gone on all these parables. And suddenly there's this, this strange interaction of Jesus going home. But if you haven't read into this. This theological truth that at all times. Humiliation of God is what's known as Jesus' time in the flesh. Remember going all the way back to the beginning of the gospel, his birth account. Going all the way back to the first interactions when you see John the Baptist telling the people, he's here, the one we've been waiting for since the fall of man is here. So repent. And then Jesus comes onto the scene in front of witnesses. The spirit descends, the voice is heard in my son, I am well pleased. And people are 
supposed to go, that's not normal. I come to the river every week. I've never seen that before. And then when he begins speaking and teaching, one who isn't a trained scribe or Pharisee comes from the lower end of the income bracket in terms of where people would say, oh, that's where he's from. And yet teaches with authority and confounds all of the religious leaders of the time. And they can't contend with the words he's speaking about, how people are supposed to prepare for God's kingdom has come. And then he stops speaking and starts healing. The one who is, who is an outcast with leprosy, cast out of the actual townships of Israel, not allowed to worship at temple. Jesus goes to the outcasts and heals them. And people are supposed to go, now there's another thing I've never seen before. People paralyzed for life, raised up and walk away by a word. Man with a withered hand on the Sabbath, where now tradition is superseding God's word. In in less than a hundred years, the people of Israel have taken up practices of looking at the writings of rabbis and their interpretation of the law as the law itself. You cannot walk more than six feet on the Sabbath or its work. You cannot pick more than this. You cannot carry more than that. And they're asking Jesus, he's not, certainly not going to heal somebody. That would be work. And Jesus shatters their, their false teaching. But just reach out your hand and you'll be healed. And he's healed. And then the people of their day say, Only someone by the power of the devil could do something like that. That's the end of chapter 12. And in chapter 13, Jesus begins speaking in parables and quoting Old Testament passages about hiding the truth because of their unbelief and revealing it to those who have been given to him by the Father, known as the disciples. And we have all these parables. And if if you have to sum it up, the parables of the kingdom are pretty simple. The kingdom's growing, and you may not notice it, but that's because you're not God. It's growing exactly at the rate and at the time and at the place that God is demanding that it grow. It's surrounded by the world of unbelief, and yet it's growing. It's a treasure, the greatest treasure. And it's the gem that is no compare in terms of value. Jesus is telling his disciples what you have in the midst of this broken, fallen world where you will face hostility simply for telling people you're a sinner and a holy God has judged you and you need to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. But don't be discouraged by the hostility. Don't be discouraged by by the pressure to not do that because your place is secure in this kingdom that I'm building and that you are a citizen of. And he tells this to the disciples by themselves, away from the crowds, away from the weeds, 
And then it has this interesting turn. Again, keeping in mind the humiliation of the Son of God. He goes to his hometown. And look what we find. This is the place, that the, the meaning of this text and the power of how it's written is to show you. When you think of your hometown where you grew up, maybe it's the big city, maybe it's a small town, and maybe it's like an episode of Cheers where everyone knows your name. And that's how you're supposed to view this. The people in the place where Jesus is going, typified by their reaction, is a place where everyone knew him. Now think of this. The humiliation of the Son of God. He is supernaturally conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, with whom we know then the people, knowing that Mary was not yet married to Joseph, would have been rumors. He would have faced rumors his whole life that he was an illegitimate child and that Joseph was a righteous man who took an unfaithful woman as his wife so as not to shame her. So he grows up with the entirety of that childhood being the whispers that he was illegitimate. Mary would forever have that shame by the society they lived in. And so he grows up sinless in this town as a carpenter's son, meaning there was no kids that grew up with Jesus and were like, Jesus used to beat me up on the bus. None of that. And they also would have known his fame is spreading everywhere he goes. Everywhere he goes, what have we seen for the first 12 chapters? The crowds. The crowds follow him. Even when he goes out to pray on his own, what happens? The crowds follow him. They keep following him. Why? Because of the power of his teaching and the healing ability and power. He's not just teaching with authority. He's showing his power through his works. He goes to his hometown. Those who knew him best. And what is their response? There's the banner hanging across the middle of the street of Nazareth. Welcome home, Jesus. No. It says when he finished the parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. Stop there and quit reading. I know it's not grammatically proper because it's the middle of a sentence. He comes to their hometown and goes to the synagogue. The synagogue was a was a type of teaching-specific place in each town uh, throughout Israel and also throughout wherever he was called the diaspora, meaning that in the Old Testament, when the Jews were scattered in exile, particularly in the Persian exile and in the Greek, they began building synagogues because they couldn't worship in temple. And so the synagogue would be a place of teaching where they would meet more than on the Sabbath and they would hear rabbis and teachers come in and they would have a section of the scripture um, extemporaneously, meaning like if we had a Tuesday night teaching night and it was just the Bible was open into a book and everyone had a bingo ball and your ball comes up and you're like, okay, who's got 21, 21, come up and teach this passage right now. It was, it was very open and then they would teach about it there was no bingo I don't know I just came over that I'm sorry that's no good and they would come up and teach from the scroll that was open 
And in doing so, they would then have the rabbis and the teachers in the audience debate or question them or even critique them. That was the normal method of how synagogue worked. Jesus comes back to his hometown. Everyone knows him and he gets up there and they are astonished. The word means to be amazed, to be without speech, meaning the authority and power with how he taught the Hebrew scriptures made them go, what? I've never heard it that way before. And they were amazed and they were awed. And they said, surely this is the son of God, right? No. Look at what they say. They were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? This is derogatory in its intent. It's not, it's not being amazed. It's being, as it says at the end of the passage, offended. They've just heard the most powerful teaching they've ever heard. They know the fame of who he is. He gets up in his hometown and teaches from, from the Old Testament. And they're like, where did he, where did he get this? Where did this man get this from? And then look what they say. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So to, to lay the narrative background, they all have heard what Jesus is doing. They've all known about the crowds, heard rumors about the healings, heard all these things. He shows up back home, gives them a dose of what he's been given everyone else, and it angers them. They despise it. And him. Everything that you've seen so far coincides perfectly with this. Like, don't be amazed that this is what he received in his hometown. This is what he's receiving everywhere. The humiliation of the creator reaching out to his creation, wearing flesh, and the creation hates him for it. And you question if sin is real. You question if the curse is real. Forget our own self-delusions that we tell ourselves about ourselves, about how good we are. We're the crowds. We're the hometown going. I remember when Jesus used to... Where did he get it from? He just taught with authority and convicted me and told me that I was a sinner and redemption was God's plan here and there's nothing I can do about it. How dare he? This is a carpenter's son. By the way, that meant this is a poor guy who's uneducated, who did not go through any type of rabbinical teaching and has not any kind of mentor of a teacher who's very famous in our day and age. So where did he get these things? We know his mother, Mary. She's scandalous. 
He's illegitimate. There's his half-brothers, we know all of them. There's his half-sisters, we know all of them, and all of his relatives in the town. So something is wrong. He shouldn't be speaking this way. And yet, if you doubt what I'm saying about the theological thrust of Advent... Bookmarker fell out. The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The Proto-Evangelion, the first giving of the gospel, God's promise to crush the curse by the seed of the woman. And all of this is going, where is he? Crying out, when will God release us? And God sends his son to the very place where they should have been going finally, and only a select few are going finally, and the rest are saying, where does he get this authority? Where does he get this power? In his hometown. I don't know how you grew up, and I don't know what your hometown, what you might think of it. And I'm not sharing a story about myself. And so I'm sharing a story about a relative of mine, though, someone who was the most essential person in witnessing to me in my life. And he's an older cousin, and he never listens to me preach, so he'll never hear this, which I'm upset about. And so, but he was a wild animal before he came into faith. Like the kind of person that was just like, what is wrong with him? Every time I saw him as a young kid, I knew there was going to be a mixture of laughter and real actual danger. (laughs) And I would always weigh it like, I'm probably going to laugh a lot, might die. But he's really funny. Just celebrating everything that only an unbelieving young man can celebrate. And then when I myself was 18, 19 years old, I still remember to this day, and I came to faith in my mid-20s, receiving a letter from him. And everything in my life at that time was emulating the things that I always saw him doing. And the letter was a letter of asking forgiveness for all the things that I'd ever seen or heard or that he told me. He didn't ask for forgiveness for all the times he beat me up, but And I was reading it, and it was like a foreign language to me. What's he talking about? It was a profession of his new life in Christ. Now, it would be years later, a few years later, where I'd end up moving in with him when I moved to Texas as an unbeliever. And again, showing both in his life and his words 
different guy. And I came to faith through the miraculous work of God and here now where I am today. But he was essential in that. And what I'm trying to get to about hometown and yet, when we have any kind of family function, all most of my unbelieving family want to talk about is what he used to do. Doesn't matter that that's been 30 years or 20 years, however long it's been. All they'll ever bring up, I remember when you, and you can see it in his face, like the long suffering having to deal. Yep, I did. Yep. But it's all they want to talk about in a way to basically undermine the reality that they see before their eyes and have seen for years that this person is not the person that they used to be and consistently hasn't been that old person for decades now. And the whole reason for that is the fact that they're talking about Jesus all the time from then to now. And it, what does it do? It offends them. And I'd be willing to bet in your life, you have friends, family, and whatnot, that if you've had a visible transformation in your life from the old to the new, you feel the sting of that same thing. What are you, in a cult? Were you, were you a weirdo? You know, all these kind of things where it's just like, yep, I'm in a cult. And I'm weird. A cult, by definition, is following a man. So you can kind of turn around and go, but I actually don't, am not in a cult. And so, no apologetics one-on-one in this. But the reality was that we all have, if you've had true transformation, especially if it came in a time when you were an adult, We all have this, the reality of this hometown experience. May not talk about it. Your friends, your family, they may be awkward. Make sure they never talk about anything important around you. You all have, I'm willing to bet, this type of experience. And so it should be no amazing thing to see that sin's natural reaction sinful hearts natural reaction to someone saying like you are a sinner and you need to repent is who are you i knew you when you were this i knew when you were doing that who are you to say these things to me i'm this in your life i'm your parent i'm your sibling i'm your child who are you Well, I'm nobody. And that's the great thing. And that's the story here. Jesus is confronted once again with broken, sinful people. And the light of the world is before their eyes. And all they want is darkness. Get away from us with your conviction of sin and your calling to the kingdom. You carpenter's son. Verse 57. And they took offense at him. There's many passages that come afterwards. But this is the central component. That comes from all that you've seen in the prior 12 chapters. Culminating 
and the scribes telling him he's healing by the power of the devil. And then now as he tells the parables about the kingdom and he comes before people and teaches to them with power and conviction, both it says in words and in power and works. And the response is offense. The response to the most high God, the second person of the Trinity, creator, redeemer, sustainer, king, priest, prophet, sinful man's response is offense. We live in an age where anything can give offense. Like hearing the word trigger used to mean, oh, are we shooting? Now it's like something offended me. Like your face, the way your voice stalked, this, I'm triggered. It's the worst word in the way that it's used now. It took a really cool word and made it terrible. Trigger. Everyone knew what it meant. Now, or even when it was a horse. Now, now it means... I'm scared, I'm hurt by ideas, or whatever it might mean. Offense has become a religious belief at everything. But when it's based on the emotions of man and woman, the frivolity of postmodern thought, of, of relativistic thinking, of, of whatever um, my emotions are telling me right now must be true. But true offense, true offense is when the holy God who created you, redeemed you, willingly, humiliates himself for the purpose of ultimately walking in that humiliation through the span of a human life and taking death willingly and to have the response of his creature say, get away from me. That's real offense. That shows beyond a shadow of the doubt, of a doubt, the true depth of brokenness and depravity of sin. Do not play with the idea of sin in your life. It is a plague. And you have seen the miracle of God in each and every one of you who have come to faith in Christ. And yet think of how often in your daily life you show offense to it. Every time you sin and go, sounds good to me, that is offense to God. Every time a new idol is built in your heart for whatever it may be, self-satisfying thing that you've discovered, that is offense at God. Christ has said, me, I'm the only one, you're mine, 
and I'm keeping you and guiding you and sustaining you and I've given you a true inheritance in my kingdom. You're mine. And it also shows us in the depth of our own depravity how amazing his grace is. How much more full and powerful it is than our sin because he keeps calling us and drawing us back to him. If you are here today and you find yourself in a place of brokenness and rebellion as a believer, give it up. Because the one who crushed the head of the serpent, the long-awaited Messiah, who took on flesh and humiliation for you out of love, out of a desire for you where he chose you by name in eternity past to be his, died on the cross for you with you specifically in mind that you would be gathered together as his representatives. All the brokenness, all the things going on in all. He wanted you. And he's going to make you pure and perfect on that last day. And until that time, because of his humiliation in the flesh, understands every single temptation, every single failure, and continues to be before the throne of the Father, interceding for you. But my blood, but they're mine. Now is the time. Now is the time to take hold of that truth. I am his. Forget the tree. And the wreaths and all the pretty stuff. No, no, no offense, Chrissy. They're beautiful. That's not what I mean. Take away all these things and all the cultural pinings of Christmas that we have. Humiliation. It's a truth. It's, it's important truth because it was for you. Celebrate the birth. Celebrate. Have the manger scenes. We have a blow-up one in front of our house. And so all of these things. But the reality is, Your place in in the condition that you and I live in on a constant basis of a struggle of our own sin nature and the shame of failure and Christ is saying, but you're mine. My humiliation was greater than anything you faced and that's okay because I did it for you. You're mine. In the times of doubt and the times of failure when you're I can't, I, can't, I can't confess this to God. He already knows it. And he's saying, give it to me. Give it to me. I pray as families, as individuals, in the coming week, as you're looking forward to the holidays and apparently being frozen to death, is that you will consider... the one who has put us all together for the purpose of his glory to shine 
in the world as his kingdom citizens faced humiliation in a manner you can't comprehend so that he might take all of yours away. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the blessing of the Spirit so that we might be broken by the word. Be amazed at the work of God, Father, Son, and Spirit in each of us as individuals and as a local church and part of the church universal. God, remind us of all you've done for us. Remind us of who we are in our very identity in Christ so that we might glorify you in our lives as individuals, as families, as a church. To the glory of God, we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Amen. Amen.